0: The world around us is changing faster than ever before from automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome welcome, to Data Guru's podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be be brave and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome Welcome to the Data Gurus podcast.
1: I'm excited to welcome Hunter Thurman, who is the president and founder of Alpha Diver. Welcome, Hunter.
2: Hi, thanks. Good to be here.
1: Thanks for joining me. Absolutely. So Hunter, why don't you just tell us a little bit about Alpha Diver, a little bit of background in terms of what your company does?
2: Sure. So I've been in the insights and strategy world for over the past 20 years and about a decade ago, so in 2011, got to a point where I was of feeling very dissatisfied with with kind of the way the way we were doing things the way we were doing insights um, and research and translating it into strategy it related a little bit to some of the comments uh, you've made about the podcast and and the goals of it and you had the insight that you know sometimes people find themselves kind of going well am i just going to kind of ride this out even though i may have some quint about the way we do this and i kind of had that point in my career and i kind of said you know Look, I, sometimes I feel like I'm making this up as I go. And, you know, it's obviously things like experience and analysis and intuition are valuable. But, but that I was kind of dissatisfied that that was my skill set, you know. And it was, you hear feedback like, well, you've just got to, you know, be in the saddle for 20 years and, and you'll have it all figured out. And that was all that was very dissatisfying to me. Um, And around that time, what I've learned since is that's a very model-free approach. I think as I look back, I was operating and, you know, the industry was operating in a model-free way. You know, you kind of imagine looking at a blank piece of paper and going, all right, where should we head? You know, when you have a framework, a place to start some foundation, a model, it's much more rewarding and it can lead to much richer discoveries. So around that time, I started... Really kind of, you know, exploring and stepping out of the industry quite a bit and hanging out with neuroscientists and psychologists and, and people from the world of academia and really discovered it was almost like this. They were kind of going, oh, wow, you're asking questions like that in business, you know, in business. But I was going, wow, you guys are studying things like that in, in neuroscience labs and things. And it was this really sort of copacetic marriage that forged and and was really the basis of of forming this company, bringing that world of mostly neuroscience, but there's a lot of psychology that we use as well into and really translating that for business applications.
1: What was that pain point that you alluded to? Was it kind of like, is this it or we could do something better and make a bigger impact here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it was a combination. And, and as I said, I've got the benefit of, you know, 10 years of retrospect now. Sure. And some of my neuroscience partners teaching me and saying, well, here's what you were experiencing. And so really it's the difference between this model-free and model-based. We'll talk more about that. But what I was experiencing in the model-free, I mean, it's sort of is as simple as it was kind of hard to explain how we were doing it. Everything was, you know, it was kind of like every night was opening night. You know, every new project, every new challenge we were using what we did last time, what we had done previously. And I think that happens a lot and sort of starting over. And with that, you know, with people coming into the space, I mean, I was in a, you know, I'd gotten a point in my career where I was in a leadership role. And it was like, I can't teach this all that well. I don't have like a syllabus, you know, or here's how you do this stuff. It was all very kind of model free. And, you know, I think that happens a lot. And people that are successful in this space are naturally good at that. And, you know, essentially what you're doing in a model free environment is going out and collecting lots of data and then coming back to the ranch and organizing it and trying to elucidate or, or reveal the model you're trying to, based on all the things we heard, what is the opportunity? What's the framework we can use? And it was, you know, sort of semi-custom or custom sort of every time. In a model-based space, you're going out and using an established model, and instead of just collecting data sort of broadly, you're mapping data back to an existing model. So, you know, if you imagine going out and saying, how do people experience the world? And you did it in a model-free way, you know, you'd go out and you would find your way to sight and sound and touch and taste. But if you knew that there were five senses, you know, so, being a real basic example, if you knew there were five senses and went out and said, let's look at our business or our occasions or whatever through sight and sound, you know, you're applying the model, you'd get there much quicker and you'd get there much more accurately, you know, and, and it might take you a long time to learn that taste and smell are actually really, you know, intermingled. They're actually, you know, kind of the same sense in many ways you'd have to discover that and you'd have to do that in a very bottom up way. A model-based approach, you know, using the five senses as an analogy, you're going out and you know what you're looking for. And so you see it and when you find it, and when, you know, a junior team member says, well, what am I supposed to do? You say, well, here's this framework, you know, go look at this. And they may not do as good a job as, you know, a seasoned vet would do, but they would be equipped to do their best job. You know, they'd have some framework that they could use to go and be successful. And I think that was that kind of inflection point that, you know, again, in retrospect, I was searching for is a foundation, a framework something durable that explained kind of any challenge and let you go forth and then study it with real intent. That's essentially what we've done. And it's been very satisfying.
1: What were the surprises that you had when you talked to people in academia about the areas that they were researching?
2: Uh, a couple things. I mean, I think I was surprised at how applicable The knowledge was, you know, and so one of my key partners here, uh, T. Siggy Hale, PhD, who's principal neuroscientist, as I started working with him. So back then it was like, well, he's a neuro. And I had this assumption that neuroscience was going to be far more technical, far more like physiological, like, you know, the parts of the brain, the brain physiology. And much less applied than I've discovered it is. So in the early days, I was surprised by how, you know, sort of everything out of his mouth and, and some of the other partners we work with, everything they said, I was like, wow, if I had known that 10 years ago, that would have that really would have changed things. So I think I was surprised by how applicable it is. And I was also surprised by how little continuity or, or I should say connectivity there is from that academic world to the rest of the world. The third thing is how dissatisfied many academics are and how much passion and aspiration there is to see the science at work, see it, you know, impact, you know, business or an organization
1: And real world application. Yeah.
2: Not just a white paper, you know, not just publish it and defend it, but get to apply it. And so all of that was a um, inception moment of our origin story.
1: So tell me a little bit about, you know, you talk about a model based approach. Share with us what that actually means.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, with the analogy of the five senses, everybody knows the five senses. You know, if you walk into the C-suite and say, hey, we looked at this through all five senses, nobody says, well, what about the sixth? Right. <laughs> how, how do you know there's only five? You know, it's like the model is well established. And so, You know, sort of with that analogy, if you think about going out and looking at, you know, insights challenges, whether it's, you know, segmentation or journey mapping or drivers and barriers of of what's, you know, driving and hindering your brand or your, your category or whatever, it's very chaotic. It's very noisy. Everything's the most important. You know, there are tons of factors and it's very difficult to organize. But, you know, in starting to, as we started working with our team years back and as we've developed it over the years, there really is a pretty simple explanation of human cognition of what of the lenses that we use to react to the world around us. So a lot of what happens in market research is we're so focused on the world around and all the noise and all the digital content, and everything you know, that we're you know, concerned about, that we sort of overlook what's going on, as we put it, between the ears of a, of a consumer.
1: Okay. Meaning how we process it, how we digest that.
2: Exactly. Look, all the noise around someone is actually much less important than what we make of it. And that's the part that's harder to get to. So to your question on the model base, and kind of with that analogy of the five senses, what neuroscience has discovered is that there are these durable, predictable drivers and barriers that are that are fairly simple that happen, you know, within someone's brain and it happens subconsciously, the majority of it. And that's where you get into those, you know, conventions that get thrown around of, you know, system one, system two. I mean, so much of our perception is subconscious. That's what makes it difficult for someone to narrate or explain to us, even if they're trying to, you know, like in a focus group or something. And so there are these four we call the framework the nine whys, and that kind of coined that handle for it. And what it says is there are these four drivers and five barriers that can simplify the world. And so the drivers range from very rational and practical. That's the one that people usually think they, that's what people think they think, because when we're trying to explain and narrate our own behavior, it's a very conscious endeavor. And in fact, we're trying to study people. It's a very conscious, rational endeavor. So there is, you know, certainly there is a motivation or a driver around rational, practical facts and figures and performance and things like that. But just as important or often more so, there's the second driver around social and tribal, all about the wisdom of the tribe, the benefits of belonging to a social culture. The third is around sensory and exploratory, really you know, making the world feel familiar via our senses and finding new, exciting discoveries. And then the fourth is what we call the impulsive or the instinctive, very much about gaining status or gaining advantages or getting access to resources. You know, some of this goes into evolutionary psychology. And basically what will happen is in a given context, one of those four will be the primary lens that a person is using to make decisions.
1: And it's only four primary, I mean, that actually, when you say that, that's amazing because it's, it's four, right? Right. Not at like a hundred.
2: Exactly. Well, and that's what's liberating about it. And, you know, it's not, you know, as simple as just going, oh, it's this one. And therefore, you know, it's all that, all this or that. But I totally agree with you. It's very liberating to say amidst all the chaos, one of these four, Siggy sometimes compares it to like little people on your shoulders, you know, that are giving you advice. There's one of those four that you'll listen to. And that knowing and diagnosing which of those is the primary voice, if you will, unlocks an awful lot. And it is pretty basic. It's pretty simple. The other big key about it that's sort of a blinding glimpse of the obvious to me as we started working with this was that it can change by context. You know, so if somebody's shopping for cleaning products, they may be listening to one of the voices. Whereas when they're choosing a streaming service provider or buying health insurance, it's a different one. And that's something that in marketing circles, I think everybody goes, yeah, that's right. But if you look at how a lot of segmentation or even currently a lot of insights are done, we kind of look at a human being as a very zero sum. You know, they're like this, you know, she drives this car, she does this, she lives here, and that's how she always is. (laughs) It's like, no, the content. that's that's the other big principle besides these drivers and barriers is the recognition in neuroscience that context has huge impact on which of these we're using.
1: I think that's analogous to how traditional research looks at occasions, right? People behave differently on certain occasions. Is that a proper analogy?
2: Absolutely, I think occasions are the current incarnation of how the industry is looking at context. You know, we've looked at it over the years of emotional need states. What we've been searching for as an industry is really how can we define and point to context. And I do think that's where a lot of organizations have shifted to an occasion-based approach. And it's sort of the closest thing, you know, done properly, as long as you don't look at occasion just as a, you know, pure consumption scenario. I think, you know, that's where we've evolved to and gotten to that. It is, you know, as I said, if you, you know, looked at it 20 years ago, you said, look, we need to really be studying context. We could have gotten here a lot quicker, more accurately.
1: Yeah, right. And what are these five barriers that you also mentioned?
2: So if you think about what hinders, and if you look from a you know behavioral science standpoint, there are these barriers that are quite punitive or quite restrictive in our behavior, the least of which is price. But the five barriers, as we lay them out sort of in the broadest sense are price, time, effort, or physical barriers, physical costs. Sometimes we call it social and emotional. And so, as I said, I mean, a lot of times when you talk to someone, If they're trying to narrate their own behavior, and this can get a lot of, you know, this can be frustrating and it can get brands into trouble when people say, well, I buy the cheapest thing. I wait till they're on deal and buy them then. You know, and we see that sometimes I'm like, IRI data, that happens. But if you step back from it, Price is actually the least punitive of the barriers. The reason we human beings invented money was to overcome other barriers, you know, to create a means by which we could achieve things. So price, you know, can be a factor, but what we see in our data is far more time. You know, you see that an awful lot, you know, in in, in journey work and digital shopping and things like that, you know, if I do this or if I purchase this, what will I have to give up doing? And then physical, you know, effort, that one's pretty intuitive, social, you know, what will people think? Is this a situation where I care what people think and so on? And then emotional costs. Well, it's basically fear of disappointment. And so it's very, you know, those are very intuitive. It's somewhat difficult to prioritize and to parse those apart, like in a qualitative setting. But what we find, and so we're measuring these using these implicit measures that we can statistically get to. Which of the drivers is you know, most strongly influencing and which of those barriers is most strongly felt, you know, most strongly restricting or inhibiting behavior. And that's where, you know, if you really understand what's hindering people beyond just, well, it's, you know, it's kind of difficult or it's not convenient or it costs too much, that's where there can be some big unlocks on how you you shorten the stick, if you will, on you know, enabling them to serve their drivers.
0: Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field.
2: Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling programming and hosting services or consultation we are agile and quick to meet your needs visit paradigmsample.com today
1: okay so walk me through an engagement a actual project if you will that you might do for a client what happened how do you go about doing something like this
2: yeah. You know, it, it doesn't look completely, you know, unfamiliar or anything. I mean, it's, um you know, engagements can range from like segmentation where we're mapping, you know, which drivers are driving a cohort. In journey mapping, we're then mapping where in the journey do they most strongly feel their driver and where they strongly feel their barrier. They're not always concurrent. You know, what's hindering you can be at a different point in the journey than what's driving you. And then we're lining up, you know, how media intersects with those. So, you know, when they're really feeling their driver, where, what's the situation and what media are relevant. And then there's, you know, broader kind of custom insights, you know, we often call drivers and barriers studies. And so, you know, a typical engagement, you know, we're getting a, a business challenge. They can be very rote, very like, look, we're deficient with a certain age cohort or a certain demographic. I mean, they can be like real basic stuff, or, you know, we're seeing a lot of things, especially right now, as we roll into 2021 of everyone trying to, you know, drive foresight, understand. Yeah. You know, and again, kind of what I said earlier, looking at all the stuff around us, it's gotten us where we are. And there's still a lot of, I mean, us as an industry, meaning there's still a lot of questions. And so by looking at that internal lens of, okay, how are people responding to all the stuff, the external stressors, you know, all the stuff around us, that's where you can get much more kind of binary on what will come and how people will respond. So, you know, from the most lofty, what comes next (laughs) down to how to drive, you know, and get her better care of requirements with Gen Z, you know, women or whatever. Those are the gamut of challenges. And so then what we're doing often is, you know, real important part up front. I think this applies beyond just our business for people to think about is looking at who we're getting and who we're not, you know, that's a big piece of our sampling. And and for some organizations they are like, yeah, obviously, but some are like, why would we talk to the people we're not getting, (laughs) you know, why would talk to our current users. And what we're doing is collecting these data on the drivers and barriers and showing the difference. You know, so that's kind of the first phase of our project planning is saying, who's our people of interest or our groups of interest that we should be studying. Sometimes there's some real consulting that goes with that to say, look, you know, everybody uses everything. How can we parse these apart? Or what are the behavioral differences that we want to make sure we collect? You know, so our sample sizes will be hundreds or thousands, depending depending on what we're doing. Doing, and really defining these groups. Then we go out, it's a semi-custom measure, so we're using this proprietary measure that uncovers the drivers and barriers um, that I discussed. There's always some you know, brand or category or contextually specific things that we incorporate. And so there's you know there's a planning phase and we go out and collect the data. And then there's an analytics phase where we're using our algorithms and our, this platform that our neuroscience team has has created. That's another surprise is how data savvy neuroscientists are. I mean, they're like, I thought they were like more like surgeons, like, oh, they like operate on people's brains. I mean, not at all. They're like hardcore data analysts. And so they've developed, Sigi and team have developed this, this platform um, that we're able to very quickly Find the grouping variables and determine, you know, what the signals are using these, these conscious drivers and barriers, and then apply that out across, you know, the rest of the data—the demographic stuff, the behavioral stuff, the brand preference stuff—that so that we can bring it back and show what you know we see, show what these signals are that are explaining the marketplace in this more holistic way and tie that back to, you know, media and the brands are using and where they're shopping and the preferences for e-com versus brick and mortar and so on and so forth. So I, I hope that answered your question.
1: It did. I'm curious, how do you get to the subconscious? So is it based on the way you ask the questions? Is there Are there algorithms that help you determine, you know, what is conscious thinking versus what is subconscious? I'm intrigued by that. How do you get to that?
2: Yeah, it's both. The questionnaire is is very simple in that we can administer it in like a regular survey. Now we've had to customize them and and kind of contort them to the question types, but a lot of what they are is there'll be like these word clouds that have these sort of seemingly random words actually presented with specific colors and specific fonts and all this stuff that will say, you know, we kind of joke that because we really want to understand why they're doing things, we never ask them why they're doing things. We'll just say, think about the context of, you know, shopping for diapers, rank these, and it'll be like this drag and drop most of our users we find are on mobile more and more, but some studies it's just as easy on whatever screen you're on. So be these ranks, there'll be these bipolars where it's this or that, two sort of competing ideas, you know, growing up in your house, it was more this or that. And they'll slide it back and forth. So it's it's these pretty simple, you know, very kind of quick response. They don't really the respondent in most cases doesn't really have any idea of what we're even trying to get at. And essentially it's these tells it's these, you know, there's lots of underpinnings, obviously about how they're designed and what the questions are meant to reveal that we've seen over the years. And in this data set, we've collected this database that we continually build and refer to that it provides these tells of someone's psychology and cognitive processes towards the context we're studying. And then the algorithms on the back end, of course, parse it back out. And, you know, the computer, so to speak, knows (laughs) what the responses mean and can make it where, you know, our strategy team, people like more with backgrounds, more like mine can say, okay, I can understand this in a way that's not like some weird Z score (laughs) in SPSS or something, you know.
1: So can you share a case study that you've used this approach and and what the outcome was as a result? Or, Or, you know, what business decision did it drive for a specific client? And understanding things are confidential, but maybe in generic terms. Yeah, yeah,
2: I'll, I'll give you kind of a, some broad strokes. I mean, that's a big piece, and we're finding that. Look, the idea of ROI on you know on studies or on investments is nothing new, but you know there's a lot of scrutiny on that, and we've looked a lot at that. Like, you know, what is the ROI? What are the business results? And that's always been obviously a core objective. And so, like, there was one for example that was a you know we see these pretty cathartic. Impacts when these are applied. Um, so one example was we looked at. So we ran a study, kind of like I described, for a, a real familiar consumption time frame for this multi-billion-dollar CPG, you know, food and beverage portfolio. So you know, if you can imagine, just in sort of the broadest sense, a, a real familiar time when certain categories are consumed and they had looked at it you know them and their competitors had looked at it obviously you know a lot of their, I think i don't know what percent but a big chunk of their volume was consumed over this period everybody had looked at it and you know it was it's a very social occasion with lots of other people around you know so when you in traditional research when you talk to shoppers they were very socially minded they were very much about the wishes and desires of their you know their guests or their peers or the other people present at these occasions there was a lot of consideration about like what other people liked or would want and so really the industry you know as i said our partner and their competitors kind of all had the same data you know and, and people said look it's all about them it's all about People I'm serving as the shopper for this category for this occasion. But what we found in the the subconscious data was actually, well, all of that's true. There are a lot of people around and yes, you're purchasing things that is going to impact lots of other people. The big signal that we saw was that, you know, subconsciously, the individual preferences of the shopper, him or herself were much more salient than they realized. In other words, yes, they were buying for lots of people, but they actually were much less concerned. They were much more self-reflective than socially reflected. You know, and some of the language that we use around that is like they were less concerned about being a good tribe mate as being a leader within the tribe. And that's something that's hard for people. You know, look, if you strip back to traditional research, it's everything from it's hard for someone to say, well, I kind of host these events because I kind of want to show off. I mean, sometimes don't say that and then there's a lot more underneath it that says you know how do I decide which brand of of, you know CPG category A I'm going to buy when I'm standing there at the shelf and both of them have big displays. I don't really know. What this data showed was that it's, it's much more introspective, much more self-reflective. And so the team took that and, and it revealed, you know, this kind of core driver of why they're doing this and how they're making decisions. And what that unlocks is, you know, all the, everything from, you know, the messaging to the heuristics, like the type of information, type of, you know, content and media that would be most impactful. And so they applied it really directly in everything from, you know, the Marcom like strategy, like do we stand for relative to these occasions all the way through a very pretty cool digital program that really kind of zigged where the market zagged all the way through to promotion, you know, and the way they were briefing, you know, Walmart and the trade. And, you know, with that, then they were, they were very specific about where they were deploying these within the journey, you know, so it was much more binary about what decision we're trying to drive at what point in the journey. So it all really hung together and it drove like double digit increase. That's amazing. Yeah, which on a brand like that is, you know, tens of dollars. So it was wildly successful from an ROI perspective.
1: So I just want to make sure I understand. So originally, they had thought that these consumers were purchasing, you know, obviously for themselves, but also for a larger group. And originally, the thought was, you know, they need to make sure that they are marketing to the needs of the larger group as well as to the person But the subconscious data actually identified that the person buying was really thinking about themselves and they were the primary driver for the purchase.
2: Yeah, they were making decisions based much more on their own preferences. And so speaking to the individual essentially was the shift. And then what we found was that some of the more housekeeping stuff, like how much did you get and stuff like that was the more relevant you know pieces for the broader group but it wasn't that wasn't their why
1: that's not the primary
2: exactly and so you know it's a look in these games of yards and inches you know and those obviously I, I had to kind of veil a lot of it more into it but they did some pretty different things that and you know part of it is it was more accurate and it was also pretty stark contrast to the competitive frame and that's another big piece of this is that you know it's a perspective that your competitor you know won't typically have It's a big advantage
1: yeah. And to your point, it's a game of yards and inches. Like, in, for a large category, a small shift could mean lots of, lots of changes in the revenue line, right? In terms of sales. So, I totally get that refinement would make a huge impact.
2: Yeah, well, as Siggy sometimes or often says, you know, people look a lot more al- alike than we do different and occasions look a lot more alike than they do different. You know, the things that are making our decisions and impacting them are, are way down beneath the surface. You know, they're not necessarily these huge, strong signals. That's like, I either buy this or I buy that and it's black and white and that's it. You know, it is we call them the difference makers down in the data. Sometimes be subtle, but then, you know, the point is exactly, as you said, when you apply them out across these these investments and these programs, they make huge impact on how you act, how you show up, where and when, and, and the business results.
1: Hunter, thank you so much for joining me today. I've learned a lot. So I appreciate you taking the time and I'm sure the listeners will have taken new knowledge and learning as well.
2: Absolutely. No, I enjoyed it. I love talking about this stuff. So thank you for the opportunity.
1: Take care. Thank you. Now more than ever,
0: there's nothing like in-person research to deliver the voice and the views of the consumer. Face-to-face delivers on empathy, captures nuanced body language, and creates personal connections that can be explored further. All focus group facilities are committed to safe and socially distanced protocols to keep our teams, our clients, and our participants safe. People are engaged and excited to share new emotions, new buying patterns, and new ways that they're seeing the world. Clients need this deep insight to make the best possible decisions at this critical time. We're here, we're focused, and we're ready. For in-person research, it's time to embrace the research space. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to.